Hi, everyone. My name is Margarita Laidova, and I'm the host of the We the Women Speaker podcast. This podcast is designed to show different badass Jewish women. And this week, I have Kylie Younell with me. She's an incredible person, an entrepreneur, and a doctoral student. But most recently, she's been known for the article that she wrote for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, My Mom is White and My Dad is Black. Don't Call Me a Jew of Color. This article has reached a ton of people and is being discussed by the Jewish community extensively. I'm really excited to interview her about her background, her business, and this piece. As always, the format of this interview will be 40 minutes of Q&A led by me, followed by 20 minutes of Q&A submitted to us by people via Google Form. Okay, Kylie, well, we can't wait to hear from you. And I want to ask the general question, tell us about yourself. What do you do? How did you get there? And also tell us about your article. Okay. Well, I'm so excited to have this conversation. The intro alone, anything that starts and ends with like badass Jewish women is the start of something so good. So I'm so excited to be a part of this and to be able to talk about these things in such a like a great space. Um, so yeah, I'm Kylie and I'm currently a PhD student. I'm about three years in. I'm going into my third year um, studying Jewish thought with a focus on 19th and 20th century German Jewish philosophy, which sounds like a big thing, and it is, but I kind of like to think of myself, um, not to take away from the seriousness of my work, but like the TMZ of Jewish thought, like trying to find figure out like who people were by digging into their lives but also understanding their thought through the context of the world that they were in and like taking a more sort of personal um approach to jewish thought so oftentimes like very philosophical i think it should really be something that's accessible and enjoyable for people um because it's just like such a rich world so i'm three years into the process of becoming somebody who just wants to spread the gospel about Jewish thought. <laughs> and I'm originally from Kansas, from a, a city or a suburb called Overland Park, Kansas, which is a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri. So it's like 10 minutes, it straddles the state line. And when I was 11, my family made Aliyah. So we moved to Israel. We lived there for four years. And after that, we moved around a few different places, started in Atlanta, that didn't last, then moved back to Kansas, and that was home base, then heard about the school in North Carolina. So my family, which is code for a single mom and her three kids, picked up and moved to Greensboro, North Carolina, um, where I, I studied there for high school. And then I came to NYU for my undergraduate years. Um, was there, worked in the Jewish nonprofit sphere after I graduated for about three years, and then started grad school at NYU, back at NYU, um, I guess now three years ago. So most of my adult life has been spent at NYU because I love it there. And that's, I guess that's, to me, that's the center of my world because I'm in the middle of papers and despite it being summer, there's still so much academic things to do, but Outside of that, I also am really passionate about trying to figure out ways for Jews to, for young Jews in particular, to take seriously kind of like the responsibility of being Jewish, but also the joy and excitement about being Jewish um, and figuring out different ways to bring the Jewish story to life and ways to help young Jews see themselves as key players, actors in the unfolding Jewish story. Um, by understanding the Jewish lives of people that came before us, who really like gave us the world that we have now. Um, and by just understanding like what it looks like to be Jewish, because there's not one way to be Jewish. There never really has been, I would argue. And I think the more of a sort of human take that we can have on Judaism, the more both appealing it will be and also the more accessible it will be. So I think really all of the different things that I do in my life are tied to making what seems inaccessible, accessible. Wow. That's really amazing. And it's incredible to see someone that from 
and their earliest upbringing has really gotten an opportunity to delve into Judaism. And then you've kind of dedicated your career and your education to Judaism, which is really remarkable. And I feel like many young Jews these days don't have these kinds of backgrounds. So to me, it's no surprise that um, when the current climate you know, has really shifted that you took an opportunity to speak up and write this article, my mom is white and my dad is black, don't call me a Jew of color for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Can you tell me a little bit more about this article and what prompted you to write it? Yeah, so I mean, we're in the middle of, though it kind of feels like we've moved past it a little bit because things are always so big in the moment. So we had the the protests, um, the, I guess you could say a resurgence of Black Lives Matter now just tied to the different shootings that we've seen across America. And because that was the thing that was, that everybody was talking about that was on everybody's lips, I was reached out to by certain people about my perspective on being Jewish and being considered black and um, what I was experiencing in this moment. Um, And I wasn't thinking about, saying anything like when somebody asked me to do a podcast and I was like I don't know if my voice is the one that you want to hear like it's different than what everybody's saying and I really took for granted the fact that just because it is different doesn't mean that it doesn't deserve to be shared so it started with a podcast and then somebody heard that or saw it It was a it was a video podcast so somebody saw it and then I was approached to do an article for JTA by somebody I know, but it's nonetheless somebody who works at JTA saw that and said, would you want to write about basically what you said, or if there's anything else you want to write about, but something related to that experience of being a black Jew at this moment. Though I was a little hesitant because again, I don't, I don't see myself as like having a voice to add to this conversation because I just see myself as like a person who's just trying to get by in the world, just trying to do the things that I love. So I, I, I said yes, because there is such a monolith in the world. Like we, we live in a world where opinions on Instagram are the ones that are the loudest, I would say at least for our for our millennial generation and so i don't i don't happen to i see those as being very divisive um, and bringing more harm to the world than than help and more darkness in general than light i mean there were literally like black squares of darkness that people posted on blackout tuesday and i think in the long run having something dark does far less than having light that you're bringing into the world um, and so i really wanted to bring that message of like unity and love and that was the platform that I was given to do it. Um, and I, my biggest, the biggest thing that I wanted to do was really just like add a voice to the narrative, like to change the narrative and to contribute a voice that was different as somebody who has lived in, I, I won't even say the Jewish world, but a variety of Jewish worlds. Like Israel is very different than Kansas. Kansas is very different than New York. New York is very different than Greensboro and they're all different from each other. So I've had the beautiful opportunity to be able to, I think of it as becoming like fluent in the different uh, Jewish communal languages, like wherever you are, there's sort of a different language to be a part of, whether it's denominational language, because I've been in pluralistic Jewish communities and Orthodox Jewish communities and Israeli Orthodox, whatever the different worlds are, like I've just gained facility in these different sort of languages of Judaism and have never felt attacked or belittled or, or just made to feel inferior because of my skin color. And I think it's a really important perspective to add to the conversation. And I just, I don't want to be defined by my color, but the voices are so loud um, of people in opposition to that saying that I should be defined by my color. And so that was really what motivated me to put into words what I put into words in that article. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. I haven't seen many perspectives of people of color that will, you know, say that they aren't willing to be defined by their color. And I guess like, how would you want to be defined in that case? So the biggest thing that I really wanted to contribute to the narrative that was happening and like just to the world was the sense of we can empower people by making them feel like they have a story to contribute. Like there is no person who doesn't have something in this world to share, who doesn't have something that made them unique. And to say that I am uniquely unique because my skin is a little bit darker than somebody else's is something that's absurd. Like, 
I don't have any Jewish traditions because of my skin color. I was raised an Ashkenazi Jew. My parents got divorced when I was five, but even then my dad has still been in and out of my life and his own being or religious affiliation hasn't even been a thing. Like I was just, I've been Jewish my whole life. And the problem that I have with the way things are going now is that we're really diminishing stories that every single person has. There's a whole population of Jews who immigrated from the Soviet Union. There's a whole population of Jews who immigrated from, from Persia or Iran. Like, there's just Jews who have come from all over the world, white, olive skin tone, black, um, wherever they came from or wherever their ancestors came from, that I think is really being diminished because it's not seen and it's not treated as something that makes them different in certain circles. And because some people feel uncomfortable because I don't fit the sort of norm or the stereotype of a Jew, my skin color is the thing that's allowed to be made a bigger deal of. And my story is allowed to be bigger than anybody else's, but it shouldn't overshadow anybody else's story because every single person has a story. And I don't think that to change the world and to empower people to make change, we will do that by making one group out to be the sort of guilty party and another out to be the victim or the group that deserves to be heard louder than another. Like, I think that there's so much room for everybody. It's the beauty of America uniquely because that's where I am, but I think it's the beauty of a lot of other countries that like we can celebrate our backgrounds and bring our full selves to the table, whatever table it is that we're at. Like, I think if we all see, if we all treat each other as human beings and like the most thorough sense of really seeing each other's humanity, irrespective of whatever race we are, disability we have, anything, like the world would just be so much better. And so I really wanted to, I really wanted to empower people to feel like they can unify around their differences, but also around our shared humanity. And so with respect to myself and how I would want to be referred to, I mean, I'm a Jew. It becomes an interesting question. It's not something like I'm still a work in progress and figuring these things out as they go. But like, if you have two people who look like me on a panel, what do you call it? Jew of color panel, panel with black people? Like, I don't know. But I do know that black is this all-encompassing term that doesn't really mean anything. Like black has always been used to define the other. So Sephardim or Yemenite Jews, or Mizrahi Jews, so Jews from the Middle East and Israel were called black. Um, somebody who's from Africa is called black in the same way somebody from Jamaica or the West Indies is called black. But those are all like vastly different life experiences that are then unified under this term black. Um, and it really diminishes, even within, even within the black population, it diminishes like human experience with that and culture and real diversity. So I, I think because language is so important, if we can get to the heart of what people are. So I am a biracial Jew, just the fact of it. My mom's white, my dad's black, and I'm Jewish. Those are all the parts of me. That's how I would be referred to or want to be referred to. But there's so much to work out. There's linguistic questions, just about just language in general, logistical questions about what we do. And there's different people who look different or how we refer to people. But I think the conversation is one that's happening and it's one that's unfolding. And if we don't have a multitude of different perspectives, we're not really going to get anywhere. And it's just going to be like Jews of color dominating that perspective or that like side of things. Wow. That is absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much for sharing your perspective. It's undeniable that you've taken the time to really think about what it means for you. And your piece is incredibly thoughtful. I recommend to whoever is listening that they would read it. Um, it, it's really interesting and remarkable. So the next question I want to ask, and this was one that was asked in the Q&A because I think it's a fair question. Everyone's dying to know. What has the response been like after the piece was published? And have you received any pushback on your perspective? So, I mean, the response on the whole was positive, at least the response that people gave to me. Um, I got, like, some of it was crazy. Like, people were like, oh, I wish I were younger. <laughs> I wish I had a son for you, <laughs> which I guess you can expect because it's like the Jewish world. So, yes, there were some fun things like that and just things that I wasn't expecting. A, I, I didn't even expect this to become a thing at all. And especially now, it's just so much content being put into the world and so many thoughts being shared. Like, everything is just kind of a blip. So something's big for a week and then it kind of fades. This has been kind of continuous, which is been fascinating to me. But on the whole, it's been positive. I think 
really the most positive thing that I've heard or the most welcomed feedback that I've gotten is that like what I wrote adds a voice that people have not heard to the conversation. That was the general sort of consensus. And so it's kind of hard to disagree with because it is my personal experience and I don't want to denigrate other people's experiences and um, people who do find meaning and value in the term Jews of color. That's my approach to the word and that's my approach to language and framing the Jewish future, I guess. And it's a unique approach. I think there's so much room for differing perspectives and we forget that like, despite the fact that we think that our opinion is the opinion, the world has never been made up of singular opinions, right? Like Martin Luther King existed in the same world as Malcolm X and those are two totally different people working in some ways towards a similar cause, but totally different ways. So the general response was, hmm, interesting, haven't heard that before. <laughs> and this gives us something to think about. And it was just a general like conversation starter or like broadening. That is super interesting. And I hope that if anything, your piece was a catalyst for a lot of conversation because right now is a time to have conversation and hear different viewpoints and learn. So it's really exciting that you were able to share your voice. And I, I also am happy to hear that it was well received by many. So I want to pivot a little bit and I want to ask you about your business because you're an entrepreneur. Tell us about your business and what kind of encouraged you to start your own? Yeah. So I will say it, it's, it's a nonprofit. So it's not, not operating the same way that a for-profit business would um, with the main goal of just bringing Jewish content to people and like the Jewish content that I want and creating space for Jews to gather, whether it's virtually or in person, where we can really bring the Jewish story to life and like see ourselves as part of something bigger. So the organization's called Rooted and our sort of tagline is that we're providing the content, the tools, and the general community and knowledge to modern Jews so that they can live flourishing lives, flourishing Jewish lives. I would say it's an experiment, right? Like I have a hypothesis that Jews are becoming more and more apathetic. Young Jews are becoming more and more apathetic towards their Judaism. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that there aren't, there aren't enough Jewish spaces for people to really be challenged to understand their Judaism. A lot of spaces you'll see because they cater to so many different types of Jews, which is exactly what we should be doing. But because of that, a lot of times Jewish content and experiences get diluted. And there's no sort of raising the bar so that people are able to sort of reach something. Instead, we kind of reach people where they are and just assume that, ah, that there's not enough that people know. So we're not going to present information in a way that's like easy and challenging, I guess, is, is one way of putting it. But it's more than challenging. It's like it's deep. It's, it's difficult to take because anything that is anything that leads to real work and growth, both self-growth and growth as a member of a Jewish community and Jewish world more broadly, it takes, it takes work, right? It's a challenge. And that means being in spaces that are open and inviting, but also welcome the challenge, welcome discussion, and situate ourselves within something bigger. So we have, at this point, we have like five to seven events a month, discussion groups, back when the world was its normal operating self, dinners, holiday, like events, and just things to really situate ourselves in the Jewish calendar and just the Jewish world. And that was like just the way that we awaken Jewish souls. Like it was just to make Judaism something that people loved and cared about because it's so worth loving and caring about. And for as challenging as the work is, it's something that's so worthwhile. So I really wanted to humanize the human story, uh, the, the human Jewish story, the Jewish story make it something that people feel and connect to on a level deeper than they ever have before and find ways to show that like being a person who cares about Judaism, it's a struggle. So in addition to Rooted, I founded Models of Faith. And that's something to really show that though it seems like it's countercultural or it's just not the thing that people are talking about, there are a lot of young people who take religion seriously, who take a relationship with God seriously, and here are their stories. So it's all like it's all being figured out as we go. I have a wonderful board 
of people who are helping me figure it out. But our main goal is to try and reduce apathy in the Jewish world and make Judaism something that continues to grow and flourish because it can and it should. It just has to be kind of like framed and marketed in the right way. I just don't think Judaism has had the best PR campaign yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So if someone wanted to learn more about your organization, where could they find you? So we're in the middle of building a website, which is very exciting and also a lot of work. But the best way now is to follow me on Instagram. All of the updates are announced through that. And slowly but surely, things are being like opened up to the public. So everything was very New York based because I'm in New York. But we're creating an email that people can get just directly to their inbox every week where you will have just a like snippet about a Jewish person in the past who's helped pave the way for us to inherit this Jewish world that we've received. So like we're talking about talking about like badass women. This woman Bertha Pappenheim who I'm not going to go into because I could and have talked about her for like hours, but she's an incredible woman who rescued women like Jewish women from sex slavery around the world. She was never married, never had children, but she started an orphanage, fought for women's education and this is in like 20th century Germany. Um so like Finding out about somebody like her, basically every week you'll get a little snippet about her life. Um, And over the course of a month, you'll have like a full picture of somebody. So there's just going to be more opportunities to feel like you're a part of the Jewish story and understand who came before you. And all of that is going to be announced shortly. And the best way to find out about that is through Instagram. Amazing. So you can follow Kylie at Kylie Unell on Instagram or at models.of.faith. And I will share both of those handles in the description of this podcast. So Kylie, I want to pivot a little bit. You had touched on this when speaking about yourself, but I want to come back to it now. You had mentioned that you've been all over. You've lived in Israel. You've lived in Atlanta. You've lived in Overland Park, Kansas, which has a flourishing Jewish community. So walk me through, I guess, how has your journey shaped who you are and how has Judaism played a role in that? So my Judaism has shaped my journey, I would say entirely. The reason that we moved was because my mom wanted to ensure that her kids had the best possibility of loving Judaism. I didn't grow up religious. Uh, My mom came from a traditional like American Jewish household, conservative, um, went to shul on the high holidays and that. But she has always been very spiritually grounded and curious and always wanting to know more and do more. And so I'd say over time, we became more traditional, like separating meat and milk dishes, or I've never had pork in my life or shellfish. It still was like this, the the Judaism that she instilled in me from a very young age was very like God-centric and very, very much focused on having a personal relationship. So like, before we'd go to before I'd go to bed, we'd say the Shema, which is something that I'd say parents oftentimes do with their young children. But we would do that before we went to bed, and then say three things that we're grateful for. And she raised us around gospel music and um, this like televangelist Joel Osteen, like whoever had a message connected to God. She like that's like my base. So my journey in life was very much informed by a personal relationship with God, which is probably the most unique and special thing I think I was given or like passed down from my mom. And it's been everything. Like my Judaism and the the form that my Jewish practice has taken has evolved so much over my life. Like being in pluralistic Jewish spaces and just growing up in general, I think it's it's so normal for kids and teenagers to just do whatever their peers do, whatever their families do when they're growing up. And then as teenagers, whatever your peers are doing. So like when I was in Israel, I was in Orthodox Jewish school. So I did the Orthodox thing though. We did watch American Idol on Friday nights and I felt like I had to hide it for my friends. Cause like, that's not kosher on Shabbat. Um, but everything, everything had to do with like what my social world around me was doing. So it kind of was in fluctuation. And then I got to college and truth be told, I met a guy and that guy was Orthodox. And I was like, okay, great. So he'll like me if I connect more to this Orthodox thing. And it then took on a life of its own. Like I think men for me are a really great catalyst for change in my life. And it's always like, 
I'm God gives me a man when it's like time for me to grow into something else and not change, but to just grow into something kind of what it feels like for me. Um, so I got to explore like how, how this like personal relationship I have with God looks as an adult who is living an independent life. Um, and trying to find ritual and things that are meaningful to me and also just find stability and religion provided a sort of source for that provided community provided something to strive for and it just gave me a base to operate from that gave me clarity and I don't know, a sense of a sense of purpose. And so my journey, I think, even as even as I've lived in different places and done different things and tried to figure out what I was doing in my life, like Judaism has always been that constant thing that like I know that's just what I am, that's what I do. And then it adds a level of excitement because I get to figure out how I want to practice it, what I want to do. So like, do I want to wear skirts? Do I want to wear jeans? Now I like it everything just changes so much and I feel like I'm kind of finding my place and figuring out what it is that I want for myself and how how Judaism informs the way I carry myself and present myself. But all of these things are so evolving. And so where I am now might be where I'm at in five years and it might not be. And it definitely wasn't where I was five years ago. So like it's all changing. I feel that. And now is definitely a like as young professionals, as young Jewish professionals, we experience a lot of change and growth in our 20s. And I see it in myself and in my peers. So hopefully we can stay flexible and resilient and really welcome any change that comes our way. And what I really love about your story is all of this change that you've welcomed has incorporated Judaism. So your Judaism, while always being a part of your life, you have really like nurtured it into something that's comfortable for you. And I wanted to ask you about Uh, your doctorate that you're pursuing. You're pursuing a PhD in 19th and 20th century Jewish thought. Something that I had been thinking about, and this is just something that I was thinking about, like every person I know our age that's going to go study Judaism after college, they usually do like the Mayan Note program or they go to yeshiva. How did you decide to pursue a doctorate? And what has that experience been like? I don't know anyone that studies that. So it's fascinating (laughs) to me. When I was in college, I was thinking that I would do more like that, that more conventional track, which is like, you go to the, you go to the seminary or whatever the learning program is for people who don't have, um, and who don't come from an observant Jewish family or something. So like Neve is one of those programs that people hear about. And that had, that had so much more to do with wanting to fit in with whatever community I was in than, and also I don't want to take away my own agency like it, but it, it did have more to do with like what people were doing around me and wanting to fit into this like college Orthodox Jewish scene, whatever that was, but me being me, like I'm still flexible and open to things changing and that just didn't seem right but the thing that the thing that stuck with me the most was learning about how other Jews navigated their Judaism and navigated life in the modern world as Jews and that's what that's what modern Jewish thought is it's like what is God in the face of a world that is becoming more enlightened and thinking more about science and where does where does religion fit into a world that's not so that's moving away from religion so many different questions that are so relevant to us still and it was the first time I'd ever encountered this so like it started I read this book it's called America's Prophet so I was very into politics and history in my early college career and this book America's Prophet was all about it's by Bruce Feiler it's all about Moses's influence on American history and the different ways that, like the Jewish story, the story of the Jews in the desert in Egypt, how that influenced American pioneers all the way up to uh, Martin Luther King and civil rights and also like the gay rights movement. So there's always been this language of like the Jews leaving their oppressor for their, free, for their land. And I was so fascinated by the way that the Jewish story, so like this one huge part of me that I don't even think about, like it's just so innate to me, informed this other huge part of me that I just didn't even think about. I'm an American. So like these two things are related. I had no idea. That's amazing. Um, And so I wanted to explore that further. I took a class on 
it was Judaism in America. And it's, this was, I was a sophomore in college. Though it was kind of historical, the professor is much more grounded in intellectual and in intellectual history. So it's very, it's very much getting into the thought that informed history. And I was obsessed with that class. I've never taken anything that inspired me more. I still have my notes from that class and I look back at them. And that professor ended up becoming my PhD advisor. So he's who I'm studying with now. So I've known him for like six years. And he's the person who really introduced me to this world. And there was just nothing like it. Like I've just never experienced something where people can just ask questions so openly and also put forth their best argument to solving problems that people, primarily young people also, Jewish thought is geared towards young people. Um, because those are the those are the people that are going to be most impacted by what people have to say. Like older people, you have your lives established, you have kids, whatever. But like young people who are trying to figure out where to go, what direction to go, what kind of family do I want to raise, what values do I want to be a part of me, what values do I want to inculcate like to my kids, like what do I what do I want, what do I want my my life to look like? Like everything is before you to figure out. So all of these Jewish thinkers are trying to. Th- trying to present the best case for their Judaism and their Judaism, particularly in the modern European world. So I focus, I focus mostly on Ashkenazic Jewry. It's an important caveat, though Sephardi Jewry, like Mizrahi Jewry in general has so much to offer also. Um, But I, I took those questions, I ate them up, I ate up the text and just, I just knew that I had to talk about these things and teach them and, help give direction for Jews who struggled as much as I did to just figure out what, what they want in life. And actually one of the biggest, the things that really solidified that track for me was Hamilton. So I saw Hamilton the day before I like defended basically my thesis in college. And after that, after I defended and after I'd seen Hamilton, I was like, I have to do the teaching version of Hamilton. Like I have to do the academic version of that or it happens to me I don't want to go into academic thought as much as I want to go into figuring out like ways to make this Jewish thought accessible to people who aren't looking to study at an academic level. But Hamilton to me was like the best iteration of that. Took all of the most complicated ideas, American history as dates and people who you've never heard of and are quick to forget and made it fun. And so that after I saw that, I was like, this is what I have to do. And I have to do this for Jews. That is so fantastic and timely because <laughs> I had just been watching Hamilton on Disney Plus and reminiscing. It is a fantastic work of art. Yes, so I'm really glad that you bring that up. <laughs> so your education is centered around Judaism. Your career is centered around Judaism. What is the most challenging aspect of doing what you do? I think both of the things that I have taken on and that I've devoted myself to are very individualized or individualistic. So being an entrepreneur, it's talk about things that have gotten the worst PR campaign. Like it's so glorified this idea that like you get to do what you want and work by your own schedule and whatever. It's so lonely. It's so hard and you have to really self-motivate. And I think in a lot of ways, PhD life is similar you know, you sit at a desk and you research things and you write things and it's you thinking with yourself. You have, you'll have colleagues you can run ideas by and advisors who you get to work with and they help guide you, assuming you have a good one. Sometimes you don't even, I think God have a very great one. I have a great relationship with. Some people don't even have that. But the, the self-motivating, the creating your own schedule, the everything being dictated by yourself and run by yourself, it's, the best, most exhilarating thing I've ever experienced. And it's the system I work the best in, but at the same time, it's also the hardest thing I've ever experienced because it just requires a lot of self-discipline, motivation, but also a lot of forgiveness, a lot, a lot of self-forgiveness and thinking about like thinking about yourself as your friend. Like I wouldn't talk to my friend in the way that I talk to myself. So why am I talking to myself this way? And that's a really hard thing to do. Um, probably the hardest thing that people do in all different circumstances. And just as an entrepreneur and as a doctoral student, you kind of have to, you have to ramp that up to full throttle, that like positive, kind self-talk. Because otherwise it just it can eat you up. It really can. Somebody once told me that getting your PhD, it, it, all of your demons come out when you're doing it. 
And I was like, oh, I don't know, you know, I'm five. I've, I've, I've been through some hard things in life. I think I'll be okay. But it's true. And you really have to have the fortitude and the mental stamina to conquer your own thoughts. And that's a really hard thing. Who knew that Who knew? gets so deep <laughs> with the PhD? <laughs> well, I think just to piggyback off of that, when I think about entrepreneurs or like running this podcast, honestly, is kind of hard, right? Because I'm a one-man show trying to get speakers. You have to know where to stop because you can always feel like you're not doing enough. And mm-hmm. what you're saying about the positive talk, like I should take that advice because sometimes <laughs> I think it's easy when you run your own gig to feel like you're not doing enough and to really spread yourself thin. 100%. And the, like the other problem is when you're doing something that you love, you want it to be the best. Like you want it to be great. You know what great looks like and what it is. And so you like the standards are just so high. And you set them yourself. So it's also, that's also hard. And then the other thing is that the only people who we really have to compare ourselves to are the people who already are successful. Like, I think the thing that I love most about your podcast is that you're talking to people who are at the beginning. Who are going, and I'm not even talking, I'm not saying this because I'm on it, but <laughs> the other episodes that I've listened to, like you're talking to people who are not, they're not the biggest stars yet. But there are people who are in the process of working towards those. Like all of the people who are on here are going to be names that we all know. I guarantee it. But the thing is, is that they're not known yet. And so it's this in-between stage. And so when you're creating something, you only look to the people who are there, who have made it. And it's like, okay, so that's what this is like. And you have to really dial back and be really grounded in the fact that like, and I, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I have to dial back and be grounded in the fact that I'm running an experiment and it's in the beginning stages. I just started rooted a year ago. And even then, like you take time off, you figure things out, you step back and then you come back and everything. There's just no linear schedule to this. And at the same time, I'm also just a PhD student. Like I, I know what I know. I don't know what I don't know. You have to let go of the ego a lot and also focus on the people who are in the middle of it and not the people who are at the end, which is really hard because we don't have as many images of those people. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think so much learning happens when you struggle a little bit, like whether at the beginning or in the middle, that when you only speak to people who have made it, they sometimes almost forget, you know, what that journey was like. So speaking to people that are going through it is really interesting because to them, it's crystal clear what their path is like at that very moment. And I love learning from those types of people. So I completely agree with you. Yeah. So I have two more questions for you before we turn it over to the Q&A. And I can tell you the Q&A is juicy. I am really (laughs) excited to ask you some of these questions. The first question I want to ask you is, what is one piece of practical advice you'd give to someone? And I feel like you'd have a fantastic answer to this. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) No, I I mean, it depends who, but I will say that the general advice I would give is to learn how to trust yourself. That's not an easy thing to do. There's a lot, there's, a, there's not a lot of guidance, I think, in how to do that, but find people who you have in your life, who you look up to, people who are, who just like speak the way you like speaking. Like they talk the way you like to hear people talking. They inspire you when they talk. They're excited about what they're doing. They're real people. And look at those people. And then figure out ways to step back from yourself. And it could be like you record yourself. There's a really, one of probably the most influential podcasts that I listened to last year was this podcast. um, It's called Startup. I think like Startup Podcast or something. It's put out by Gimlet. And it's this guy who started Gimlet, which is a podcast. I don't know what it's called, like channel that has podcasts in it. And they recently were sold. They're bought out by Spotify. But he started this business and he literally like recorded voice notes of the whole process. So it's the only, it's the only podcast that you'll hear that documents the failures, the mistakes and the successes of just like starting up. And I found something really powerful in the ability to just like record what, record yourself, record your thoughts, record your struggles, record the moments where you're crying, record like anything that you can. Cause it's really, it's the only way to get a sort of bird's eye view of yourself And I think people would be really surprised to find that when you hear yourself talking, you sound so much better than you think you do, or your ideas are so much better than you think that they are. You know so much more than you think you do. And it it really helps build 
internal self, like self-trust. And I think that people are very fearful of how others will respond to things or how they're going to sound when they speak in front of people or how they're going to sound when they write something that's for other people. And this is advice, by the way, that I, I give because I'm learning how to take it every single day. But the root of, of the fear is a lack of trust in ourselves and what we know. I, I just think the world would be better if we could all figure out how to trust ourselves and to trust our voice. And that also stems from, from love of self. So you make a mistake, you fuck up. How are you going to move past that? How are you going to forgive yourself for that? And then how are you going to not let that ruin your sense of self-trust? And once you have like love and trust in yourself and for yourself, I think, I think you're unstoppable. And so figuring out ways to cultivate that, I'd say would be the biggest piece of advice, though it's also the most vague piece of advice you can give somebody, but it's the key to unlocking so much potential. Snaps to that. Okay. So then the last question, and I feel like it's a really great progression given the last question. What advice would you give to women dealing with the world as it is today? That's a great question. Figure out ways, especially now, like this is coming out in the height of summer. And the thing that I'm grappling with the most is jealousy. And I think summer is something that's, that's, that's the prime time for jealousy. Like we're on social media, you see people doing like having parties or going places and they have, even if it's like they're having picnics in the park with groups of friends or women get together and they're all cute and whatever, like it's prime jealousy time. Like just people are having fun and it's summer and I should be having fun and I'm not. But the advice that I would give to women in particular, because I think we're especially prone to this, is figure out the ways to see the value in all of the things that you're doing in your life and act more compassionately towards the women so that you can create like a strong community of women around you. Even if like, they're just, they're like your Instagram followers, but like when you have a sense of, I don't even know if that makes sense, but when you feel a sense of value in the work that you're doing, even if it doesn't seem as like photogenic as what other women are doing, but when you have a a sense of your own internal value and purpose and like Also, you understand the sort of long term, like, yeah, you're not out with a group of women right now, or you're not out with friends and like you are jealous of these people because they're doing things that you're not. If you take a sort of like a more long term perspective of what you're doing and what you're working towards, you'll treat yourself with more compassion. And I also think that it will help provide more compassion and love for the women around us, whether it's they're around us physically or virtually. Because I think the most poisonous thing for women today is jealousy, is envy and wanting to like to just be better somehow or like compete with other women. And it's it's so poisonous. So loving yourself and loving and, and seeing your own value and the value in the work that you're doing every day, whatever it is. And I think work is often misconstrued as like sitting at a desk or having an office job or something. But work is going on a run and work is work is showing up to whatever you have to show up to or want to show up to. And if you can do that, you will have less envy and like cultivate love for women around you. And then our female community, like the world's female community will be so much better off because like we'll all be rooting for each other. I appreciate that answer. And more importantly, I am a big fan of puns and the word rooting, the pun was intended. I love it. I want to start a drinking game where like every time somebody says rooting or rooted, like we all take a shot. (laughs) You will get a really positive response with that game. I think think so too. (laughs) So now I want to turn it over to what I call quote unquote audience Q&A or questions that were submitted by people before the recording, either anonymously or they let us know who they are. The first one comes from Sasha. Sasha was actually one of the speakers on the series. So it's really awesome that she is still listening in and submitting questions. So she writes, thanks for writing your essay. I'm curious how you apply the logic of your article to other areas of your life. As a woman, I've often been part of a small minority when taking certain college classes or in workplace settings. 
I'm also a small minority as a Jewish person. Rather than viewing me as just a fellow colleague, I know some people view me as a fellow Jewish and or female colleague. It's something that seems to happen whether I want being Jewish or being a woman to define me in those settings. How do you think about those scenarios in your own life? So the thing that was handed down to me from my mom is this lesson that like you can really feel like you belong anywhere, even if you know if you know that you stand out because you look different or I mean, I guess that's the biggest thing. You look different, but looking different isn't limited to color. It's also limited to like my mom's blonde and she'll say she walks into a synagogue and people look at her like, what are you doing here? Like she's a blonde. She doesn't look very Jewish. So what? It doesn't make sense. But walking into a place and being in an environment and knowing that every single person has something that they feel makes them stand out is something that really levels the playing field. Seeing yourself in an office space and focusing on the fact that like you are one of the only women, you're one of two women, you are the only Jew, that can be something alienating if it feels like the thing that is like the, the sole difference. Um, and if you focus only on your difference in the face of like this majority who all, all look the same or all one, who are all one religion. But I really think belonging is something that we have more power to control than what people often think. Everybody just has their thing. Sometimes we don't know what that thing is. Sometimes we do. But if you focus so much on what makes you different, you'll only feel more different. If you focus on the thing that unites you with other people, you'll feel more a part of that collective. And that's how I've that's how I've carried myself in workspaces, spaces where I was the only Jew. I've been in plenty of spaces like that. I had an internship in DC and I lived with a Mormon girl and I was very much the only Jew. And I was like, that was my thing. Other people had their thing. That was my thing. Seeing your thing as like your superpower, but also the thing that like unites you with people because everybody has their own superpower. That will hopefully give you a sense of belonging. And that's the thing that I've carried with me and that I take from my essay and bring into my personal life. Got it. I think that's a great answer. So moving on to the next question, and it comes from Stephanie. The question is, well, I guess there's a comment here. There's a compliment first. <laughs> it is so refreshing to see that you have felt at home in many Jewish communities around the world. What are some of the things that these communities have done that others could learn from and implement to become more accepting of all of those who visit and frequent their community? The thing that stands out to me the most is either being really considerate and open about the quote-unquote elephant in the room, if people feel it isn't. If my color is treated as an elephant in the room, people are so sensitive. The people in spaces where I've been made to feel comfortable, they're very sensitive to it. And I think the approach is one where they don't see me as being so different that they're going to make so much of my color, my skin color, but they also recognize that I have a story and I have something that makes me unique in the Jewish world. They don't rush to get to that, like to understand what it is that makes me unique and how I look the way that I look. It's like something that they're very patient with and let unfold naturally and organically. So I think really cultivating like an organic experience. I was talking to somebody recently and he was saying that the LGBTQ community has this or this particular organization has has really come a long way in creating a very organic Shabbat experience for the LGBTQ community where like somebody will walk into whatever this this ex organization and feel totally comfortable as an LGBTQ Jew, which is phenomenal. I think that the way to achieve that in the Jewish community is to also have the same sort of organic experience for somebody who is a biracial Jew or a black Jew or just somebody who doesn't look stereotypically Jewish, which just means treating them like a person, waiting for their story to come out if it does. Um, and if it doesn't, then getting to know them like you would any other person. That is super interesting. I love that answer. So then the next question uh, is anonymous. And this is, I'm interested to hear what you say. This is a fascinating question. Do you have any advice for people who want to support Black Lives Matter, but wrestle with it because the organization supports anti-Semitic causes like BDS or boycott, divest, sanction Israel? So I'm really happy with that question because it's so important. And it's something that people do not talk about enough, which is that the Black Lives Matter movement as a movement is very, very politically tied. So there is 
the principled belief that Black Lives Matter, and then there's the organization and the movement, which is a politically motivated movement trying to enact systematic change in America, which I find to be very dangerous. That being said, I do feel very strongly that Black Lives Matter, um, and that is something to really reconcile with, but I'm just so happy with the question to begin with because this shows that somebody is reconciling with those, those two facts, and I don't think enough people are, so thank you for posing that question. And it's a really, it's a very difficult thing. I think, I think at the end of the day, the thing that is the most effective force of change in the world is not activism as we think about it in terms of protesting, but activism through like radical love, if you will, or radical acceptance and surrounding yourself with people who are different than you who think differently than you, who look differently than you, and understanding what makes them uniquely them, that's the thing that will bring the most change in the world. I think the problem with political activism today in the Black Lives Matter movement is that it capitalizes on what I think of as social media activism, which is very temporary. And I don't know if other people feel this way, but like I see Black Lives Matter posters out or things, people posting things on Facebook or Instagram, and it kind of feels like yesterday's news. It's not because it's not important anymore, but the tide on social media is so constantly changing that you're always waiting for the next thing. But the problem with activism today is that it's so concentrated in one particular moment that it doesn't have enough stamina to really span time and to be something that creates real change because there aren't enough people, I think, standing up for it. I, I Without a tragedy, God forbid that happens, I don't think you would get the same numbers protesting the way that you did a few weeks ago in light of tragedy. So what does that really mean? It means that it's not quite as strong as we think it is. And in order to have a real lasting impact in the world, I don't think the thing to do is to hold up a cardboard sign that says Black Lives Matter or post something on Instagram or Facebook that says Black Lives Matter, but to actually take action, to meet people to be around people who you might not be around because there aren't a lot of black people in your community or there's this movement like diversify your feed. If you're not around, if, you, if your friends aren't biracial Jews or black Jews, like if your friends aren't those people, you're not really going to hear about them. So you're going to be somebody supporting Black Lives Matter from behind a screen, not really connecting with other people who are different than you or think differently, but just more of whatever you have in your feed, which are people who are who you know already, who think like you probably. I think my answer to that question is to move beyond the social media magnet and sort of temporary political magnet that is Black Lives Matter and to really, really engage in activism by loving people differently than you, getting to know people that are different than you, really bringing more light into the world instead of darkness. And I think you'd be really surprised to see how much change that ushers into the world. Um, and m how much more lasting that change is. Kylie, thank you so much for answering that question and just being so transparent and willing to share your thoughts. Um, it's undeniable that you've thought about this. So I appreciate that you are willing to share kind of your stance on this and it means a lot. So I, I want to thank you for doing this series and being part of this podcast. It's really Awesome. Do you have any kind of like final thoughts or last words you want to share before we say goodbye? I just want to thank you so much for creating the space and for running this the way that you do. Like it just, it's a really special project that you're doing and I'm so honored to be able to be a part of it and to be able to just be in a space where I feel comfortable to speak my mind and to say what it is that I'm thinking and feeling and know that it's something that is accepted as my truth and whether people agree with it or not, I think there's just such honest discussion and dialogue and conversation here. And it's, I, it's just such an honor to be a part of. So thank you. Thanks so much. That really means a lot. And that is the goal of this podcast to help people get on here and share what it is they want to share candidly in a space where they're not going to be criticized. I'm always looking for more speakers. So if you out there listening have badass Jewish women or you yourself are badass Jewish women, please email me or connect with me on Instagram. 
I'm always looking for more speakers. And with that, I want to wrap up. Thank you again, Kylie. It's a huge pleasure.